Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. My name is Ronnie. I'm a member here at GCC, and it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's Word today. As Jake said earlier, our whole aim and goal here is to make Jesus the hero. From everything we do, from the worship services to the groups that meet throughout the week and the leadership cohort, everything is designed and aimed to make Jesus the hero. I hope that's exactly what happens today as we explore the book of 1 Corinthians. Speaking of the book of 1 Corinthians, we've been in a series for the last, I would say, month, month and a half, entitled Saints in the City. And what we're looking at is what it looks like practically to live as Christians in the society around us. 1 Corinthians is a great book to do that, and we're continuing that series today in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. So if you have a Bible, you can jump there now. And if not, there's actually Bibles strategically placed around the room that you can grab and use during the service. If you don't own one at all, that's actually our gift to you to take home and use. Oh, thank you. For those of us who may have missed the last couple sermons or haven't, maybe this is your first time coming to Gospel Community Church, I'd like to provide a little quick context as we jump into this passage. I think two important things to remember is who is writing this letter and who it's being written to. So the author of this letter is the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about his history, before he became an apostle, before Jesus came into his life and said, hey, you're going to be one of mine now, Paul was actually heavily persecuting the early Christian church. He was going out and having them arrested, even commissioned at one time to go and do this. So he was not fond of the Christian movement, of what Jesus Christ had started. He was actually vehemently attacking it. But Jesus steps in while he's on his way to go do this and essentially converts Paul, commissions him, and he becomes... One of the, I I would arguably say, the greatest evangelists, the greatest church planner to ever existed. As a matter of fact, the church that he's writing this letter to, 1 Corinthians, was a church that he had planted, if you go back and read about it in the book of Acts. What's interesting about the church in Corinth is Paul had planned this church, he left, and now the reason why he's writing this letter is because the church had fallen into some trouble, basically. The culture of Corinth, where this church was located, was sexually immoral, religiously diverse, and politically corrupt. And I know it's probably hard to imagine what it's like to live in a culture like that, but I'm sure we could relate on some level with the Corinthians. And they had gotten caught up in all this stuff, and now Paul was addressing these things, helping them, encouraging them, showing them what it is like to live as a Christian in a city that is not sanctified, not holy? What, what is it like to live as a Christ follower in this context? Today, if you're a note-taker, the title of this sermon is The Wisdom Given to the Saints. And in that vein, thinking about what the Corinthians had gotten caught up in, the philosophy that was surrounding them, the rhetoric, the worldly wisdom that was going on, we're going to be looking at the wisdom of God that had been given to the Church of Christ, given us to now, us now today. So as we move throughout the passage just spoiler alert, we're going to be looking at the wisdom of God, which is the gospel. We're looking at how that came from God, is from God, and how that contrasts against the earthly wisdom that the Corinthians had gotten caught up in. So what I'll do, read the passage, we'll pray, and then jump into it. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. 
This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for condescending, coming down, and giving us your wisdom, your understanding, so that we could know the way to salvation, so that we could understand your plan for humanity, your plan in bringing yourself glory. I pray that this would be the, the wisdom with which we build our lives off of, we pray that this wisdom would not just be knowledge that affects our minds and our thinking, but that it would influence the way we live, that it would transform all of our life. We thank you for this time and this space to come and meet and explore these truths that you've given us in Scripture. And we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you... As you read through this passage, there's a couple words that come up repeatedly throughout it. Some of those are wisdom, understanding, instruction, discernment, thoughts. A lot of what Paul is talking about is kind of wrapped up together in this idea of wisdom and understanding. A lot of times in our culture and even throughout human history, when we think of wisdom, we always think that it's, it's good to have wisdom. Wisdom is always good. We want wisdom. We say someone's wise, it is, it is a good thing. Paul, in this passage, is using the idea and contrasting bad wisdom and good wisdom because there is a difference between the two. James even talks about this in his apostle, epistle. If you read the epistle of James, he talks about there's a heavenly wisdom from God and there's an earthly wisdom. And I, I thought it would be fun and funny to show some examples of what exactly earthly wisdom looks like. So if you wouldn't mind uh, flipping the slide, I have some examples here of some uh, bad wisdom, but is celebrated throughout the earth as good. So this is John Stuart Mill. Does anybody know who this is? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> he had a lot of bad ideas. This was one of them. He said, liberty consists in doing what one desires. There's two things wrong with this. The first, let me ask you this. Think of the worst sin or sins you've ever committed, think of them, take a second in your mind right now. Did you not do that thing 
because you had a desire to do it. Why would you do it if you did not have a desire to do that very thing? Let me ask you this as well. After having done it, was freedom the term you would use to describe the way you felt after having done it? No. Obviously. And Jesus says just as much in John 8, 34, that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. We don't feel freedom when we just go around fulfilling all of our desires. There is no real sense in which liberty comes from just doing whatever you want all the time, for fulfilling every little desire and getting pulled into every little thing your heart desires. There's no freedom there. Go to the next one. Socrates. Everybody's a little more familiar with him. Said, all that I know is that I know nothing. Well, then how does he know that? Just poetic nonsense. And this, I, I didn't pull, like, I didn't Google bad philosophy. This is what the earth considers good philosophy. If you go to the next one, Frederick Nietzsche, famous atheist philosopher, there are no eternal facts as there are no absolute truths. Is that absolutely true? I don't know what he would say. A nonsense statement, but hailed as earthly wisdom. And we can make fun of these guys. They lived a long time ago. Nobody in academics says anything so ridiculous nowadays. There's nobody that holds a seat at Princeton University as a bioethicist that would say something so foolish, except for Peter Singer, who said this awful statement. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons, but, but animals are self-aware, and therefore the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee a professor at Princeton. And yet the world holds us up as good wisdom. And we may laugh or shake our heads in disappointment, but this is the earthly wisdom. We have to be careful, though, when reading Paul. Paul is not just shooting down wisdom and saying that wisdom is bad, 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 bad. Because look in verse 6 right there. What does he say? He says we impart wisdom. So he's giving something. He's making a clear distinction between the worldly wisdom that the Corinthians had gotten up in because part of the culture was this practice called rhetoric where they would get, to get together and argue and debate. We've talked about it in the past where they would attach themselves onto different teachers and say, well, I follow the teaching of Apollos and I follow the teaching of Paul. And oh, I really like the way he thinks, but I would interject here and get all snooty and high-minded, basically. And it was a practice. Another thing to be said about earthly wisdom is... I do truly thank God that he has left enough sense and wisdom in this world that the vast majority of humanity does not live practically with what some of the world's greatest philosophers have said. There have been rulers in the past that have adopted these earthly philosophies and led out of them, and millions of people have died, which makes sense because by vain, empty philosophies, not living according to the way of life, which is God, they will produce death. And not just... A physical death. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 6. He says the wisdom that he's imparting to them, it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Who are what? They're doomed to pass away. Worldly philosophy, unbiblical thinking, it doesn't just produce death in a physical sense, but it also produces spiritual death, which is interesting. Just about every single aspect of the gospel I have seen mocked and gawked at in our culture. Some examples, the, the fact that we're born in sin, sinful from birth, that we have the doctrine of our original sin, that we inherited this from Adam. The world hates this idea. We want to think that we're morally neutral. 
that we're all going to heaven because we're pretty good. We compare ourselves to our friends and stuff like that. Most people think that they're going to heaven because they lead a pretty good life. Well, I know I'm better than this person. I know that I'm better than this coworker, or I'm better than this other friend that I have. Completely ignoring and contradicting the, the teaching in Ephesians 2 that we are by nature children of wrath. People hate the exclusive nature of the gospel. The fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me, often not even understanding what that truly means. And that, by the way, you can't have it both ways. Jesus is either the way or he's not a way. How could the one way say that he is the only way? He's either lying about being the only way or he truly is the only way. He can't just be one among the many pantheons of God. It wouldn't even work. The Western world has experienced an attack on marriage in the last 50 years that is antithetical to the gospel. And what I'm saying in marriage, there's this connection in Ephesians 5 that Paul does when he says that marriage is somehow this mysterious reflection of the gospel, of Jesus Christ's relationship with the church. Even the things that are a shadow of the gospel, the culture repudiates. The earthly wisdom repudiates. So what's the heavenly wisdom that comes against the wisdom of this age? Well, look in verse 7. Paul begins to explore that. He says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What is this secret wisdom? It's the same thing that we've been preaching in Corinthians and will continue to preach as we go throughout the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Spoiler alert, it's the gospel. This is the same gospel that the believers in Acts 4, 27-28 proclaimed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. This was God's plan from the beginning of time. But what God had held in secret in the past has now been revealed finally through Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. That is the final revelation given to man, Jesus Christ. This plan of salvation that God has been working throughout history has finally come. The wisdom of God, this plan and understanding, has come through Jesus Christ. And wisdom for us now is to turn from our foolishness and embrace the wisdom of God. The wisdom and understanding that we are sinful, yes, from birth, that we have inherited this sinful nature from Adam. There's two reasons why you, you must understand this idea. Or there's two reasons why I believe it's true. One, the Bible says it. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But also I have four kids. I know this makes people uncomfortable when I ask them to consider even the youngest of children because our culture always wants to say, oh, they're so innocent, they're so innocent. Um, to quote my favorite theologian, or one of my favorite theologians, Vodi Bauckham, the only reason that God made them so small as infants is so that they wouldn't kill us. And the only reason he made them so cute is so that we wouldn't kill them. I have a, what I call a three-nager, three years old but acts like a teenager, two toddlers and an infant right now, they are selfish, self-destructive, and rebellious beyond all belief. Their hobbies include running out into the street and touching electrical sockets. <laughs> when they don't get their way, they try to persuade me by screaming and throwing themselves on the floor, which they must have learned from me, because that's exactly how I act when I don't get my way, of course. No, 
Obviously not. I, I would think most parents agree with me in here that we don't have to teach our kids a lot of the stuff that they do. It might surprise some of you to know that I don't go around my house beating everyone and taking stuff out of their hands, yet my son thinks it's a great idea. None of my kids are really talking a whole lot yet, but some of the parents who have older kids who are talking, let me ask you this. At what point did you sit them down and teach them how to lie? Did they see you tell a lie or something? Did they understand that you were lying? No. They just knew it. They had that, that selfishness, that self-protectiveness. They had that desire to rebel against God and lie. The only people, in my opinion, my opinion, the only people that struggle with the doctrine of original sin are those who either don't have children or paid someone else to raise theirs for them. Now, not only have we inherited a sin nature from Adam, but we have condemned ourselves a million times over through our own sin. As funny as it is to look at my kids, it's incredibly sad when I can empathize with them, even at such a young age, because while I might not, I might not do the exact same things, I am still incredibly selfish, self-destructive, and rebellious. It is only by the grace of God that not only will I, but all of us, will have a family, will have a job, and will most importantly have a faith in Christ many, many years from now. Because we constantly seek to destroy every single one of those good gifts God gives us. We don't read our Bibles, we don't pray, so we don't communion with God. We get angry with our kids, we selfishly argue with our spouses, we cut corners at work and give half of our time and attention, we steal from our employers. There's something wrong in every single one of us that we want to see all the good gifts that God has given us thrown off to the side so that we can sit there and rummage through garbage. The beautiful thing in the wisdom of God, though, is that he loved us so much. He sent Christ to live a life free of this kind of self-destruction. It, it wasn't just that Christ died and went to the cross. He did die for you, but he also lived a perfect life so that we could have life. God's desire in the gospel is that we would stop looking to ourselves, stop looking to our own ability to figure this out, but to turn from our own arrogance and trust in Christ, knowing that there's no other hope in life or death outside of his work. This is the wisdom of God, the gospel. And if we look at verse 8, as he continues on, when we examine the gospel, when we understand the gospel, how it all even went down in history, we can't be surprised at what Paul says in verse 8. He said, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they would, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Rick talked about this a couple weeks ago, how the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. But it wasn't, it wasn't just the Jews that the cross is a stumbling block or was and is now. Many people had problems with the cross. Pontius Pilate. Many people aren't expecting the power of God to come in such a way. How could men so drunk on their lust for power, see the wisdom of God in a poor, homeless carpenter who washes the feet of his followers. But that, that's actually God's, this is God's power move. If, you, if you've read your Bibles, you know the stories really well. All throughout Old, Old New Testament, Old Testament especially, God is the king of irony. He is the king of poetic justice. I was reading my daughter the story of Exodus out of the Jesus Storybook Bible last night. The Israelites, they pass through the Red Sea, right? We, know, we all know the story of the parting of the Red Sea. They pass through it, and the Egyptians are ultimately crushed by their own desire to, to crush the Israelites. Had they not pursued them and just let them go, they would have lived. 
But it was their own foolish pursuit after the Israelites that God brings the water in on top of them. If you've read the story of Esther, Haman, the villain in that story, the bad guy, built some gallows. You guys know what gallows are, like the hangman's noose? He built that to see God's servant Mordecai hung by it. If you know the story, who was ultimately hung by those very gallows with which he built? It was Haman himself. God's irony at play. Think of the story of David and Goliath. That's a very popular one. Most of us know that. Goliath comes out with a sword. He sees a small shepherd boy. In his mind, he's going to take this sword and rip that boy in half. How did Goliath die? It wasn't the stone to the head. The stone incapacitated him, but what was he ultimately killed by? David picked up his own sword and separated his head from his shoulders with his very own sword that he thought he would crush God's servant with. And wasn't it Christ's death on the cross that ultimately dealt the blow to sin and death? This is how God works. He, he t- in all these different ways, he brings himself glory in the unexpected. And we love this stuff in movies and cultures and entertainment, by the way. We love the unexpected. And God is an amazing storyteller, bringing himself glory in all these ways. And this should humble us and bring a great sense of fear to ourselves and to those outside of Christ. Jesus said that those who don't acknowledge him before the world will not be acknowledged before the Father. And there is something weighty to that. And we don't want to find ourselves on the wrong end of God's poetic justice. Paul goes on to talk about the gospel more in this passage. In verse 9, he quotes from Isaiah, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Read by itself and pulled out of the rest of the context of the verse, a lot of people think this has to do with heaven. Um, And it could be true of future promises, absolutely. But here specifically, if you look at the first part of verse 10, Paul is using the past tense, these things, and then the present, God has, revealed in speaking about this, what no eye has seen nor ear heard. The things that had been, that had not been revealed yet, are now revealed through Jesus Christ. He's talking about the gospel here in this quote from Isaiah, saying that this prophecy that would talk about all the stuff that was coming forward has now found its fulfillment revealed to all of us in Jesus. As we continue in verse 10, Paul again explores how God is receiving all the glory in what he's done. Remember that these things, it refers to the gospel, prophesied by Isaiah, revealed to us by God. How are we humbled in this? We'll look at what verse 10 says. None of us came to believe in the gospel and accept these spiritual truths in any kind of natural way. It wasn't our own understanding, our own pursuit. We weren't on some kind of spiritual journey. But what does it say? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Again, God is the one getting the glory. Paul explores this argument in verse 11. He uses the word for, indicating the beginning of argument for the preceding clause. How does he know that these truths came from an external source and not an internal one? Because in the same way you can't read my mind, I can't read yours. If we would know anything about what God is doing about his wisdom that he's talking about here again, it would require some kind of condescension on his part. Us trying to understand God and his wisdom would be like an ant trying to understand my 401k. There has to be something that fundamentally changes about the nature of that creature for them to understand. So this is God's active pursuit of his people in revealing this hidden wisdom in the gospel. All of it has been grace. He's graced us with the mind of Christ. 
This is not something to be earned on human efforts. It's not something that could be pursued. Read Romans 1. And now this wisdom that he's given to us is something that we go forth and proclaim. This is part of the saints and society portion of it. Paul says we cast down lofty arguments with the foundation of this wisdom that God has given us. We talked in the song, we were even singing how we will build our lives on this firm foundation. Jesus talks about the foundation, the man who built his house on the rock, the one who built his house on the sand. So we're building our lives on this foundation. We're proclaiming it. In verse 13, he says, And we, talking about the church, everyone, imparting this wisdom, not taught by human wisdom, in verse 13, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. They're not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, Paul's talking about how this had to have been a grace on God's part in interacting with humanity, in revealing the gospel and sending Jesus with his teachings and the gospel. This had to happen in the way that it did. What's funny about verse 14, some of you may resonate with this, but this may just be anecdotally from my own experiences. But I think verse 14 makes a lot of sense in when I've communicated the gospel to people. For one, For some reason, the vast majority of our culture believes that Christianity is all about being good and getting to heaven. Almost universally. Anytime I ask somebody, the very first question I always ask is, uh, you know, what do you think about Christianity, the Christian story? Would you mind telling me what you think it is? I almost always get it's about being good, and if you're good enough, you get to heaven. Where did that come from? For some reason, even when I've communicated the gospel, it is almost like a glitch in the matrix happens sometimes where it either completely goes over their head or they, they miss it and try to bring in another argument. They want to say the next thing. It is, it is the weirdest and most bizarre thing that ever happens. That so much of the culture, it, this is foundational to Christianity, the gospel, the nature of our salvation, that it is not in our good works. It's not our own obedience that gets us into heaven. I don't know where that comes from, but it's so prevalent. Because that is a natural way of thinking, is it not? That's how we go through our life. We earn our parents' obedience by doing all the right things, In elementary school, middle school, high school, how do we get top honors and good marks? We obey. We we listen to what the teachers tell us. We complete our assignments. In work, it's not the people who are doing all the wrong things that get the bonuses and the pay raises and the nice job. This is a natural way of the world of thinking that we would have to strive for some kind of obedience. So we can't be surprised there. What I would say is listen to the gospel one last time before we close. Let's explore this last, one last time, the wisdom of God in the gospel. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Every breath we draw is a gift, not owed to us, but given to us for God. Think about your life for a second. What could you have done prior to existence to have earned your existence? Nothing. You didn't exist. That was a grace of God. The fact that you live right now, whatever good gift you have in your life, these are all gifts that God has given us, and yet we continue in rebellion against him. You think, you would think, that in a random chance universe, that there would at least be a couple people sprinkled here that would have obeyed at least the Ten Commandments. At least those ten. I get there are other commands in Scripture, but at least the ten. Nobody, nobody, 
In a random chance universe, what is there, over 6 billion people alive today? Think of how many people have existed throughout human history, and nobody has ever at least not broken the 10? There has to be something said about our nature there. And God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. Part of that perfect justice is that he will punish sin. I've used the example before of a, there's a passage in the Chronicles of Narnia from C.S. Lewis, but that one's kind of dated. He's a little, a, a little more modern one, I guess. And hopefully this will, this will relate and resonate this idea. Our sin to God is not like garlic to a vampire. God isn't hissing and curling back from our sin, afraid of it. It's more like this. I'll give you an analogy. Hopefully most of you have seen Avengers Infinity War. If not, I will paint this well enough to where you understand what I'm talking about, I promise. In the movie, there are good guys and there are bad guys, relatively speaking. There are good guys and there are bad guys. My favorite in that movie, at least Infinity War, would be Thor. Because, in my opinion, calm down, I think he's the strongest. He's the most powerful. Once he gets the weapon towards the end in the final fight scene where there's all these good guys clashing against these bad guys, he comes in with his final weapon. In that moment, the music changes. You know, it's like a completely new scene change. He comes in and he starts wreaking havoc on all the bad guys. Here's the thing. In that story, Thor is the good guy. Not only is he good, he's extremely powerful. The aliens in that scene, the bad guys, are bad. Now, I get it. They're bad. But what happens if they come into Thor's presence? Well, he's good, right? Nothing bad should happen to them because he's a good guy. Absolutely not. They're on the wrong side. As a matter of fact, if I was an alien in that battle, I would want to be as far away from Thor as possible because within five seconds of him being on that battlefield, he like strikes 50 of them with lightning or something like that. It's absolutely crazy. That is a better analogy of our sin before God. It is not that he curls back and, and withdraws from our sin. It is that he is good and he is powerful and we are the enemies of God through our sin. It is dangerous. God is not safe. While he's good, he is not safe to step into his presence full of sin. We need some kind of covering. We need some form of reconciliation so that we can step back into his presence to have communion with him again. And that's where the gospel comes in. That's where Jesus comes in. We talked about this in the cohort earlier this week, the double cure that happens at the cross. It's not just that you, you've broken all of God's commands, but you haven't even lived a perfectly righteous life. You've done the things that God has told you not to do, but you've also failed to do the things that he's commanded you to do. But Christ has done both. At the cross, there's two things that happen. He completely removes our sin, but then he also imputes to us his righteousness, his perfect life. He gives us. So that now when God sees us, not only does he see us as sinless and pure, perfect, holy, blameless, never having sin, he sees us as righteous. He sees us as he sees Jesus and can say to you just as much as he can to say to Christ, behold, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He is pleased with you. God doesn't not like you anymore. Or it's not that God doesn't like you or not love you. He does like you. He loves you. You have the perfect covering of Christ on your behalf. That is what takes place at the cross. This is the wisdom of God. And if you missed what I just said, Go back and listen to this message again. Read the Gospels. Pray to God. Ask him to open your eyes. Ask somebody else in this church what exactly was he explaining towards the end of the sermon. Ask what is the Gospel because this is incredibly important. 
you can't save yourself if you're a natural person. You will never come to accept this gospel. You'll never understand it. You have to go to God and ask him to reveal it to you. In closing, let's look at verse 15 and 16. This is an implication of the wisdom of God that he has given us. This is the greatest implication. It's what I, exactly what I just talked about. He says in 15, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. Paul asks rhetorically, for who is understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This isn't the only place that this has been communicated in the gospel. If, if, if God is for us, who could be against us? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you want to experience the freedom that Paul expresses here in verse 15, when he says to the spiritual person that is to be judged by no one, then you need the mind of Christ. Turn away from the foolishness of this world, the foolish thinking of this world, and accept the things of God, and you will pass through the judgment, not only of this world, but of the judgment of God, and instead come into his grace. And, and if you pass under the judgment of God and you come under his grace, what else does it matter what the world thinks of you? They can't condemn you. How could they? If God doesn't condemn you, he gets the final say ultimately. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whatever wisdom you have given us is a grace from you, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the wisdom and the story that you've been telling over throughout human history. We thank you for who you are and all the ways that you've brought yourself glory in this grand narrative. We pray that we would build our lives upon these, this spiritual wisdom that you give to us and not any earthly wisdom, any passing wisdom, any passing thinking, God, but we would live and build our lives off of your eternal truths. We pray that the gospel would transform us, that we would live lives consistent with this spiritual wisdom you've given us. Spirit, Holy Spirit, we ask you to invade our lives, change our thinking, direct us to God. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.